Excellent. Thank you very much, Brother Jordan, and congratulations again to Jordan and Jenna. It's nice to see that your eyes are only slightly bloodshot this morning, Jordan. <laughs> Welcome to the club. I saw James down the back here and he fell asleep once so far this morning, so uh, it's good, good fun. Well, it's a joy to be back up here again, preaching, and we'll continue in our series that we began two sermons ago in Titus, in the book of Titus, and we'll be continuing on in chapter 1. So if you could open up there with me, Titus chapter 1, I'll be reading from verse 5 this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, that if a man is above reproach, he's the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not, not aggressive, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families and teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You know, a lot of what we know about the qualifications for, for elders and, and for pastors actually comes from these verses. In fact, these verses are perhaps one of the greatest insights into what church, correct church leadership, model church leadership is and what it is to be a part of that. And we can look at our own church leadership at NCC here. We see the eldership, Jeff, Bill, Peter and Steve, faithfully modelling these things that we've read in our text this morning. However, if I was just going to, to preach this sermon to the elders, well, that would be somewhat wrong of me to do as I am a younger man and I'm not an elder myself. So this morning, as we examine the text, context says that we must look at it specifically in relation to church leadership. But as, re- as I was reading through these characteristics, I couldn't help but think, If I was to define the term a faithful, serving Christian, 
That is, if I was a Christian seeking to follow the Scriptures, seeking to image Christ, if I was wanting to honour God with my day-to-day living and serve Him with whatever capacity that He wills me to serve, then these verses would very accurately describe that picture. So much so that I, as a man, desire to model these noble characteristics. And so I want to look at that this morning, characteristics that we can better exemplify in our day-to-day living, whether you're a younger man, like I am, or an older man, like... I won't mention any names. We can always grow in our godliness and we can always better glorify God with our lives. PowerPoint up. So I ask this morning that as we look through the text, you would not take these so much as words of mine, but rather at what the text says, the word of God. Let us learn and grow together. Now, ladies, our text this morning primarily is written is primarily about men, it's written to men, but that doesn't mean that you guys now get to tune out and tune in next week, but rather I would encourage you to listen in as well because these things we're going to be talking about, these are things that you yourselves can encourage and pray towards for your husbands or your future husbands. They are things that you can pray towards for your kids, your grandkids, Jeff and uh, Greg and Wendy. Um... They are things you can pray towards for your great-grandkids, your family. For boys, these are things that they can model, that you can encourage them to model. And for girls, these are things that they can look for in a husband. As well as that, many of the characteristics that we'll be talking about this morning are things that can apply to both men and women, all believers. So ask ladies, please listen in this morning as well. So with these things in, our, in mind, let us get started on our text. As we were reading, you may have noticed that we almost had this positive-negative kind of layout to our text. And I love that because not only is it great to have both a negative example and a positive example, it also gives me my sermon outline, which is fantastic. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across this excerpt from the Banner of Truth magazine back in 1983. I'm just going to take time to read it and ask you to listen closely. It says, When your mind's are in a holy, heavenly frame, people are likely to partake of the fruits of it. Your prayers and praises and doctrine will be sweet and heavenly to others. People will see when you have been much with God. O brethren, watch therefore over your own hearts. Keep out lusts, passions, worldly inclinations. Keep up with a life of faith, of love, of zeal. Be much at home and much with God. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongue, and be the greatest hinderers of success of your own labours. One proud, one surely, one lowly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many opportunities and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Let your lives condemn sin and persuade others for the Lord. Essentially, that's what we're dealing with this morning. We're dealing with lives that reflect godly character, so much so that we can be of faithful service to the Lord. It's been taught here from the pulpit many times, even 
pastor prayed this morning. We live in a growing age of tolerance, in a, in a time where anything that would buck the trend, as it were, is, is looked down upon as being divisive or inconsiderate to others' beliefs and others' cultures. What's right for you is not so much right for me. And one area I can see, and I think we can all see, where this is taking place, this growing tolerance, is in the area of morals or morality as a whole. We know that to be a life, we know that a life in sin and rebellion is almost cheered as, as people stand up against what we know to be as Christians correct and godly morals. That kind of life is, is praised today. But here in our text we have somewhat of a list, requirements if you like, which context says yes is for church leaders. But even in the Christian life, these things are to be modelled so that we can not only be an effective servant for the Lord, but just generally we are to bring him all the glory that he rightly deserves. Look at what Paul says here, verse 6. We have many points to get through this morning and I'll try to move through them somewhat quickly. He says, verse 6, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Above reproach. What does it mean for you and I to be above reproach? When we talk about being above reproach, we're talking about the idea of integrity or the idea of ethical integrity. And what is integrity? Well, we're talking about the issue, we're talking about strong moral and strong ethical principles, being completely honest about them and sticking to them no matter what the cost. So to be above reproach is to have integrity. To have integrity is to have strong moral and ethical principles and to stick to them. Ethical integrity is one of the crucial attributes of Christ-like character. As vital as it is to be sound in doctrine and faithful in teaching the truths of the Scriptures, it is by no means less crucial for Christians to be upright in heart and consistent in our obedience to the moral and ethical principles of God's law. Now that standard of moral and ethical principles of God's law is so high, Jesus equates it with God's own perfection in Matthew 5.48. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that sets an unattainable standard, of course, but it is our duty, nonetheless, to pursue integrity. Perfect ethical consistency is part of the goal of absolute Christ-likeness. What every Christian should be striving towards in Philippians 3.12-14. No believer should therefore sacrifice his or her own ethical integrity. And it's probably not overstating the fact as well that the single most important battlefield for the struggle of integrity is within our minds. That is where everything seems to be won or lost. Or lost. A corrupt character inevitably leads and spoils the reputation because a bad tree can't bring forth good fruit. Men, if we are to be Christ-like, ready for service, we must be above reproach. We must be men of absolute integrity, holding strong to the ethical principles of God's law with Christ's help, of course. 
Nothing short of this is required of a faithful servant of the Lord. We look at strong leaders today and a strong leader is, is one that the world considers to be somebody that moves with the times, so to speak. But here a faithful servant holds to the timeless truths of the scripture and lives them out on a day-to-day basis. Paul goes on to say, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Men, can I ask, how are our marriages? How are our families? Paul says, Paul says, another area of our lives that must be in check for a man of service is our families, his wife and his children. You know, we here at NTC, we're in each other's fellowship for three hours somewhat on a Sunday morning, perhaps two hours during the week at a, at a home group. But that leaves 163 hours of the week where a large portion of that is spent within our families. As one wise man said, Marriage, a marriage reflecting oneness in Christ is a marriage where the husband and wife are much in the word and much in prayer. You know, I admit my own failings in this as a husband. My own inabilities to be the husband that my wife deserves and the child and the father that models godliness for his son. It's hard. It really is hard. But that's besides the point. Men, if we are to be of faithful service to the Lord, an accurate gauge for that is our families and our marriages. And if they are not functioning in a God-honouring manner, then how can we be of faithful service to the Lord? It's time to take a good hard look, men. Good look at our marriages. Good look at our families. Seek forgiveness where needed. And honour the Lord in this so that we can be faithful servants of the Lord. Paul continues in verse 7. He says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not aggressive, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout and self-controlled. Again, Paul brings forth another list, more character traits for a faithful godly servant. And it says, we are not to be self-willed men. It's basically like telling us men not to watch TV ever. Not to be self-willed is like telling us ladies not to breathe, basically. Uh, I think that just, might just be my home, but um, anyways. Self-willed is talking of more than just doing what you want, whenever you want to do it, and however you want to do it. The original language would translate it to be something like great arrogance or absolute disregard for how others might be affected by our actions. Being self-willed essentially disregards not only others' interests, but also God's own will and God's glory, replacing it with man's own desires. Also, picking up on what Paul says next, not only are we we not to be self-willed men, but we are also not to be quick-tempered, that is, to be slow to anger. 
Just thinking about these two character traits, as you look around at the world today and see what we would call, from a worldly perspective, a successful leader, these traits, these characteristics, this aggressiveness, this self-assertedness, this desire to get to the top is something that is almost cheered. It is something that gets you places within your workplace. And Paul says exactly the opposite of that. He commands us not to be like these people. A faithful servant of the Lord, to a faithful servant of the Lord, this aggressive pursuit of gain is not an honourable thing. It is sinful and must be removed from our lives. Paul continues, he says, We are not to be addicted to wine, not aggressive and not not fond of sordid gain. This idea of being greedy and aggressive and pushing for what you want so as to get more results is something that we see so often in the world today. And not only that, Paul throws in this, this one line about not getting drunk on wine. Now, this carries the idea of not being in the presence of much wine. But here, just looking at this text, the subject of whether or not a Christian should drink or not drink alcohol is not the time to talk about this in, in this sermon. But I just want to pick up on what Paul does say. He's not commanding Christians to abstain from all alcohol. However, there is wisdom in what he says. Again, like I was saying, it carries with it the idea of not being much in the presence of wine. Continuously. And you can understand why if we're as a Christian and, and we were much in the presence of wine around fellow workmates or, or unbelieving friends, what that would potentially do to our testimony. It could lead to potentially saying something that perhaps was better unsaid or worse, doing something that, was perhaps really, that perhaps shouldn't have been done. Men, the drinking culture today is one where we as Christian men need to walk the higher ground. If we start to make allowances here, it can lead to one slippery slope. We must be aware of the consequences that are liberties, that, of the liberties that we take. Notice all the things that we've just looked at now, being self-willed, quick-tempered, aggressive, greedy, celebrating success with wine. All these things seem to be associated with great leadership, with people who are going places and leaving everybody else in their wake. And you can see from an unbeliever's perspective why these things are somewhat attractive, because quite often they're accompanied by wealth and and success and everything else. But these are not the things that Paul lists as being right for leaders to have. In fact, he commands us boldly against them. Any man looking to faithfully serve the Lord must not have any part in these things, lest he be distracted from his service. So what then are we to be like? How is it we are to behave? We are to be, as verses 8 and 9 says, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that we will both be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. 
Seven things we see modelled for us in these verses. Men, we are to be hospitable. This idea of hospitality is giving practical help to those in need, whether they be a believer or an unbeliever. He, this person freely offers up their time, their resources and their encouragement to meet the needs of others. I know this is something I struggle with personally. Neil will tell you when I get home from work, I like to put my feet up on the couch in front of the TV, just relax. And that, that's my time. That's my time to veg out. And I, and I do love that. But perhaps a little too much sometimes. As we are called to show hospitality, to give of our time freely and encourage, and to be an encouragement to all. Next, we are to love what is good. And I believe this refers to our, our daily struggle with sin because, man, we all know too well how easy it is to be lovers of all things evil. All it takes is one frustrating driver on the road or one pretty girl to walk past. Men, we must strive to do what Paul says in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, let your minds dwell on these things. Men, it is of utmost important that we be lovers of all things good. Good people, good activities and good habits. How honouring, it, how honouring is it to the Lord if others should see this example of us being lovers of good rather than lovers of evil? Next, we are to be sensible. And it literally refers to being cool-headed, to being in control of one's mind and being discerning. And how often do we fail at this man? being engaged in things that are more unproductive rather than being God-glorifying. Next, we are to be just. We are to demonstrate the quality of fairness or righteousness. And this is incredibly important because a faithful servant, for a faithful servant to demonstrate this, it is imaging God himself who is a just and justifier of our faith. Then we are to be devout. We are to be devout and this has the idea of holy obedience, holy obedience desiring to follow God's will and God's law in every area of our lives. We have to be self-controlled. And perhaps, men, this can be one of the hardest things for us. Showing self-control in the very depths of our heart, even if we might be morally in check on the outside, the inside also has to be so. Men, we must keep ourselves in check we must submit our sin to the Lord's cleansing and keep a clear conscience before Him. When we talk about self-control, another important aspect that I have found and it helps massively is to have the encouragement of another man. Another man who can keep us accountable, who can ask the, the difficult questions of us. That was six things that we must have in check in order to be of proper faithful service to the Lord. Before we continue, these things, there's no such thing as, as sinless perfection, right? So we need the Lord's help in this. We need his help through forgiveness. Every time we fail to do one of these things perfectly, we are sitting before a most holy God. And can I suggest that that would be a daily thing? 
We have the promise of 1 John 1 9, but if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By God's grace, mercy and power, we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And like Paul, we can live devoutly and uprightly, pleasing the Lord, being examples to others and removing anything that might affect our testimony for him. Well, our seventh thing... Oh, hello. Not sure what happened there, Beck. But anyways, our seventh thing that we're looking at, and this is my favourite, and I think it was Paul's favourite as well, because he gives a whole sentence rather than just one or two words. It's looking at verse 9, where it says, We are to be holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching, so that we will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So far our list has mainly been in relation to attitudes or characteristics, but when we get to this point we're talking specifically and it relates specifically to our ministries. Our ministry, whatever that might be, whether it be here in church in a public ministry or it be witnessing to our workmates, doing a devotion, leading or attending Bible study. Whatever our ministry that we are involved in, it must be kept in check by God's word. The idea of holding fast is literally sticking to it like glue, strongly clinging and let nothing else get in that way. In order to be effective servants of the Lord, we are called to love the faithful word of God, respect it, study it, believe it and obey it. It is our own spiritual nourishment. We are to be constantly nourished by the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Men, at all costs, we must have a commitment to the authority and the sufficiency of God's word as the only source of moral and spiritual truth. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, may, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Not some good work, but every good work. Our effective service to the Lord is not merely built on our own abilities or education or our human wisdom, but rather it is built on our knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures holding fast to the faithful Word of God. Our service is built on the submission to the Holy Spirit applying these truths to our lives. A man who has not committed himself to holding fast to the faithful Word is a man susceptible to influences of the things of this world The truth of God's word must be woven into the very fabric of our lives. And why is this so important? It says it in the text. It says, So that we will be both able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. To exhort or encourage someone, notice what Paul says, in sound doctrine. We aren't just to encourage, but we are to encourage in sound doctrine. Where do we find sound doctrine? The word of God. Contrary to what we see in most churches today, where the Bible sometimes is not even open, it is merely just, it's not just a resource for truth, but the scriptures are a divinely revealed source of truth. It is not accompanying a text to a thought or a feeling, but it is the only text by which we are to be guided. 
as truths are not optional, but mandatory. Hence why Paul adds, by holding fast to the Word of God, we can refute those who contradict Scripture. We should know the Word so well that when false doctrine or false living presents itself, we can refute it. You know, one of the most loving things you can do for a brother or sister in sin is to refute them. I'm not saying that we go around doing that after church, but to encourage a brother or sister out of sin into a life of godliness is something that is of great encouragement to them, not only, but also God-glorifying. Men, if we want to be of faithful service to the Lord, we must be grounded in the Word, we must be grounded to the Word of God, we must read the Word of God, we must study the Word of God. How can we do this if our Bibles spend more time on the side tables than they do on our hands? We must be men of the Word. And I know that this can be a hard thing to try and develop, a hard habit to try and develop for us men. But we must be much in the Word. Of course, all these characteristics that we've just read of, they are nothing if they are not first based upon the salvation. Without God, none of these things can be so in our lives. If you first have not got that in check, then these things will just be mere worldly efforts to impress others rather than out of a deep conviction to glorify the one true God. Wherever our service or leadership is, whether it be in our homes, in our workplace, in a public ministry, here at church on Sunday, These character traits are of the utmost importance for us to have in order to be faithful servants of the Lord. Ladies, young and old, these things, are, are they not things that you would desire to see in us men? Yes, we often fail that and we admit, but remind us graciously, the key word is, Graciously, encourage our our sons, our grandsons, nephews, great nephews in these things. For if they are true children of the Lord, imaging these things, and they will not only hopefully be a great husband one day, but they will honour the Lord also. For young women looking for a husband, for young men looking to be one, Brett. Image these things in your lives and look for these things in a man. Be mindful of what the scriptures say regarding being unequally yoked with regards to marriage. So that was uh, Paul's positive encouragement to us. Now let's, let's look at the negative. So one thing about Paul's writing is is he often gives the example of both, which is really helpful. Picking up in verse 10, he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. This passage serves as somewhat of a twofold warning for us. Firstly, things to be aware of within the church, namely false teachers and deceivers. And secondly, serves as a warning 
of things to avoid for us in our own personal lives. Paul says there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. Now, context says this was written back to the Cretan church, but in, in Paul's day, but how often can we see this today in our own church? Even churches here in Adelaide that surround us in Modbury. You only have to listen to part of a sermon from a few of these churches and you can already see that this is true, that there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. These people, by very definition, have no regard for the authority of God's word. They are rebels against God and have no regards for God's people. They are empty talkers and full of deception. I pray that this would be none of us here at, at NCC and that NCC would be somewhat protected by this kind of influence by God's grace. But the truth of it is that it can happen in any church. These people can worm their way into our churches, into our lives, in such a way that they appear to be genuine believers, but yet spread division and sow seeds of discontent as they disregard sound doctrine from the Word of God. What happens to these people? Verse 11 They are to be silenced because one, they are upsetting families and two, their motive is their own gain. They desire nothing more than their own gain. That's why they are not of the flock. That's why they do not care for the work of the flock and that's why they have their own interests at heart. They want up because they think they can control that. Meanwhile, they are upsetting families and causing division within the church. They are, as verse 12 says, liars Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and they are to be reproved severely. Why? So that they be sound in faith. These people are not to be condemned so much as they are to be corrected, having their sinfulness exposed so that they see the need for the Lord. When it comes to dealing with difficult people, I think something we can do as Christians, many of us are guilty of it, it's kind of going on this Christian headhunt kind of thing. But when it comes to our attitude, it should not be one of condemnation so much as correction, desiring repentance. It should be to encourage them in the ways of godliness so that they may be sound in faith and not swayed, verse 14, by Jewish myths and commandments of men. Our attitude is to be towards restoration and if it is not, we put ourselves in the other camp. Finally in this section, look at verses 15 and 16 with me. It says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient, worthless for any good deeds. Two aspects that Paul addresses here. One is the mind, the conscience, which is the inner man, and the second is the, the outer man, the deeds by which we, the deeds that we commit. Those who are defiled and unbelieving, their mind is defiled. In other words, if sin is your master, it is the master of your whole being, your conscience, your mind, and ultimately it will show itself out in the deeds that you perform. An unbeliever can profess to know God, but ultimately the inner man will reveal his true colours 
and the, by his deeds or his actions of the outer man. By their deeds it will come out that they do not know the Lord. A mere, confe- a mere profession of Christian faith cannot hold somebody up forever. At some stage you will see their true colours, whether it be in sinfulness, without repentance, whether it be in lack of commitment to the faith, lack of commitment to the fellowship, to fellowship with God's people, or lack of commitment to God himself, it will come out that they are an unbeliever and that they are still in the darkness. They are being detestable, disobedient to God, and they are but worthless for any good deed. Men, this is not grounds for a works-based salvation, but rather it is something for us to be wary of, wary of in our church and wary of in our homes. But for the grace of God, men, this could have been us. It could very well have been us. And I pray that it would not be any one of you sitting here this morning, but can I ask that if it is, that you would not leave this place without getting right with the Lord. We have a God who is rich in mercy, who has chosen some, drawn them out of darkness and into his marvellous light. May it never be that we find ourselves in a position sowing seeds of discontent. May it never be that we are fooling ourselves like the false teachers, that we are fooling ourselves and others into believing that we are living in a God-glorifying manner all the while remaining in sinful rebellion. May we be on the lookout for these kinds of people so as to guard ourselves and to guard others from their influence. May we be on the lookout for these kind of people so that we would encourage them to be sound in faith. It is my desire, and I know it's the elders' desire here at NCC, that we would be strong in fellowship, that we would be a strong fellowship of servants, that we may be encouraging one another, we may be stirring each other on in godliness, and that we would be a fellowship whereby we are edifying one another. Men, much of this starts with us and there is no excuse. Anything short of God's perfect standard is sin and daily we need to be in repentance. Daily we need to be in prayer. Daily we need to be in the Word so as to be faithful servants of the Lord and an example to our families and those around us. If we are to faithfully serve the Lord, then we must, at all costs, keep these things in check. As I close, I couldn't help but think of some of Paul's other famous words from Romans 12. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the timeless truths of your word. We thank you that by it, Lord, we can keep our lives in check. We know that we often fail at this, Lord, and we ask for your forgiveness in this. We pray that we would be men We would be a church, Lord, desiring to serve you faithfully in all areas of our lives. Pray that you would take us to our homes in safety now. In your precious name. Amen.